to When God Was Queer with your host, Dakota St. Clair. Hey everyone, and welcome back to When God Was Queer for episode 7, Infernal Allies. This one is... It's going to be a doozy. I'm really excited about it. It's actually going to be our first two-parter, so it's a big deal. Um, And that's because I wanted to tackle the subject of... Or actually, maybe it should be like... Uh, The subject of demonology. Uh, But I also wanted to make sure that before I start telling the stories of demons who seem to be cut from the same cloth as us, that I laid the groundwork for us to understand just what exactly constitutes a demon. I wrote an article a while back for Catland, uh, my store that I own, uh, our in-house magazine, Venefica, which is available at catlandbooks.com, entitled Infernal Allies for the Embattled Femme. Uh, and it was this, I wrote this article as a way to approach demonology through the lens of camaraderie and fellowship among the outcast and the heretic. You see, by examining just who and what has been called a demon for millennia and how we've gotten to the terms we use today, I felt we could make sense of a class of spirits which has been accorded more fear and loathing than any other could even fathom. So I hope you'll engage with the following with an open mind, um, critical thinking, essential skepticism, and maybe a pinch of doubt built on hope. Here is Infernal Allies for the Embattled Femme. Demonology has long been a favorite topic of mine. Yet, as I've attempted over the years to navigate the labyrinthine maze of grimoires and tomes, ancient Greek texts, and Renaissance magic, I couldn't help but notice two things. A, how deeply patriarchal the whole affair ends up being, because just like the potential pitfalls of classical Satanism, it often relies on affirming the biblical God in order to ally with his opponent, Um, which is a bit of an issue because, B, you're basically finding masculinity empowered and enthroned at every turn, uh, while femininity is simply just symptomatic of the evil, corrupt nature of women. Not really a great fit for me. Um, And it also often plays out in who and what gets classified as a demon, as well as the techniques used to conjure forth these spirits and extract information or a boon from them, and, of course, the overall tone as well as the members of the conversation at large. I've often been left wondering just why exactly I would be drawn to such a forbidding, seemingly elitist portion of the dark arts. And then it occurred to me, it's for the same reasons that I've long professed such an abiding love for so many of the saints. It seems fairly obvious to me that there's more than enough evidence which draws these spirits' evil nature into question. It seems sensible to wonder if we might not benefit from their wise counsel. Very often, these spirits seem more like tutelary guides who can be entreated in order to attain the mastery of various skills, specifically in the realms of witchcraft and magic, rather than the classically two-dimensional caricatures often featured in the rhetoric surrounding demonology. The reality is that, just like the saints and to some extent the angels, demons are far too often the only lasting vestige of a spirit which has just barely survived the Abrahamic slaughterhouse. It also doesn't hurt to seek out those who share our nature as reviled and cast out for being exactly what we are, and even more so, not apologizing and for fighting those who would seek to oppress us. The only infernal allies we will explore today will hail from the Abrahamic framework of traditions. This, by all accounts, is not just demonology's birthplace, but the house it lives in. 
Now, of course, there are hundreds and thousands of spirits who we could discuss hailing from parts of the world over. However, there's often a much messier, murkier reasoning behind their being ascribed the title demon, usually rooted in a lack of cross-cultural nuance perpetrated by Western anthropology and religious studies, or even more insidiously by imperialism, colonialism, and evangelism. For example, possibly one of the most obvious infernal allies for the embattled femme would be the Aranyes, the Furies of ancient Greece. They come from the underworld in order to exact vengeance, usually on behalf of women, otherwise too disempowered to seek justice on their own. But are they demons? Mm, only in a Christianized sense. What's the difference, though? Well, you have to start with the word itself. A demon is defined as a supernatural and often malevolent being prevalent in religion, occultism, literature, fiction, mythology, and folklore. Interestingly, the original Greek word daimon does not carry negative connotations. Instead, it refers to a tutelary spirit or divine power akin to the Latin genius or numen. Ironically, these concepts are actually the blueprint for the guardian angel. The Greek concept of a daimon was a spirit falling somewhere in the space between gods and mortals, as in the works of Plato, where it's the divine inspiration of Socrates. It was not until the Septuagint, which was the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, that the concept of evil was even attached, and this was just through uh, an error in translation, really. This is why it's traditional to use a different spelling when referring to a daimon rather than a demon. So that leaves us with the question, wait a minute, what are demons? Historically, we find that spirits which have been ascribed the title demon fall into several categories. First, there are animistic spirits of death, disease, and destruction. Uh, since every, every anim animistic cosmology found the world over features the understanding that just as there are animating principles, agents, and entities behind life, there are just as many behind death and dying. In most of these cultures and belief systems, there's a clear understanding that the forces of life and death are innately amoral and without a necessary intent driving them. Belief systems maintained an understanding of the spirits who were responsible for death, disease, and destruction. Even though these spirits were naturally feared, they were also venerated as necessary components in nature and in the working order of the universe. Once Abrahamic faiths met these respective cultures through imperialism, colonialism, and evangelism, they very literally demonized these spirits, attempting to further turn their adherence toward their own god. Next, we have evil spirits, but this was, you have to be a little more specific, it's really unclean spirits. You see, ancient Jewish lore was full of dire warnings about the unclean spirit, along with various groups and classes of these spirits one should fear and revile. Many scholars believe this was born out of the influence both of Babylonian and Egyptian cosmologies, which at the time maintained a central theory correlating all disease, all misfortune, basically anything that could possibly go wrong, to the work of malevolent spirits, which one must constantly guard against. The Tanakh itself mentions two classes of unclean spirit, known as the Seirim and the Shadim. The Shadim are, in all actuality, the gods of rival tribes and nations encountered by the ancient Israelites, while the Seirim are most likely a reference to these goat-like demons that they had uh, seen in Assyria. In both of these cases, there are references to human sacrifice, usually that of children, to these spirits, although such descriptions seem to be pretty obviously designed to ward off any would-be converts from the tribe of Israel. Outside of scripture, there are also other unclean spirits mentioned, like the Matzakim or Harmers. Often these spirits would be identified by the time of day they were believed to be at their most potent or dangerous, which seems to be a hallmark of Egyptian and Babylonian cosmology. 
And in our third pool, which is to me the most important, we have forgotten and bastardized gods. Rather than explain this part though, let me offer you an example. Meet Baal or Bile. Baal's a mainstay in demonology, quite often as a very high-ranking individual in the grand scheme of hell. In the Goetia, for example, Baal is ranked as the first and principal king of hell, ruling over the east. According to some authors, Baal is a duke, with 66 legions of demons under his command. He's mentioned in the Bible as one of the foreign gods classified as false and unclean, belonging to the Canaanites and worshipped by the Phoenicians. So right there, we already have our proof that this was clearly a competing god. But in actuality, Baal, which means lord or master, was really a popular epithet or honorific for a wide array of competing Semitic gods. So not only is the name used incorrectly in this case, but several different demons bear names which can be traced to this erroneous root. There's Beelzebub, a derogatory name used to defame another local competing god, Bereth from Baal Bereth, and even a figure named Balaam, a diviner and wicked man from the Torah. The last uh, sort of thing that we could draw on here in terms of uh, what are these spirits, where, where are we supposed to derive them from, um, is more of a modern interpretation, and it's still important, it's just not one that we would use in the work that we're doing here, because we're looking at folklore and, you know, um, traditions around spirits. So, uh, that would be sociocultural archetypes. It should, of course, come as no surprise that the study of demonology has been used throughout history, especially recent history, to understand any group's ideas on morality, outlining... Uh, uh, specifically what's taboo. Many modern commentators have gone a step further, looking at demons as emblematic of the passions and urges each of us may have inside of us, but which we as a society have collectively decided to either stigmatize or outlaw for whatever reason. So what exactly is demonology then? There's two main definitions. Demonology is more commonly defined as the study and attempted classification and understanding of demons, their existence, their nature, their relationship to humans, and their supposed influence in the affairs and events of the world. A little less commonly, though, the term is also used to denote the belief in demons and the occult methods used to summon and control them, so more like a class of magic. Historically, demonology is rooted in the amalgamation of Greco-Roman magic, Jewish Agadah, and Christian lore, legend, and cosmology. This was organized in grimoires and various apocryphal texts, and further crystallized through Renaissance magic, manifesting in modern Western occultism and ceremonial magic. It's also important to note that large swaths of demonology are actually rooted in ancient Zoroastrianism as it was witnessed by ancient Judaism in the Persian era, and this laid the groundwork later developed by Christianity and to a lesser extent, Islam. Now, this brings us to another question. Where do demons actually come from? We talked about who they might be, but let's talk about where they actually came from, because in any... Um, uh, in any study of demonology, regardless of its uh, the tradition it comes from, the actual creation of demons or the, the um, origin of their nature seems to be a huge part of their story. And in Christianity, which supplies most of the base material for the study of demonology, demons are corrupted spirits carrying out evil. They are generally regarded as either three different types of spirits or the same type of spirit having three different possible origins. Uh, we'll list them here, least to most popular. Uh, first, we have souls of the wicked deceased, which roam the earth to torment the living. Second, we have the Nephilim, who came into being by the union of women and angels and were wiped out during the Great Flood, leaving behind wandering, disembodied, vengeful spirits. Or third, most popularly, fallen angels, resulting from either the Luciferian Rebellion, the Adamic Fall, or the Enochic Fall. 
Now, each of these three theories has their proponents and uh, supposed scriptural evidence for their being accurate. However, there's just not actually a part of the Bible which really spells out, here was the fall, here is the creation of demons, here's, we, we don't even have a specific part of the Bible that says, oh, hey, so there was Lucifer, and then he pissed off God, and then now he's Satan. So it's really actually up to a lot of additional storytelling, uh, which can come from a lot of different sources. Um, many make the argument that the common concept of Satan that we have today and his fall from Lucifer to Satan actually comes from Milton's Paradise Lost. So, you know, it really depends on where you get it from. But when we talk about the actual fall or the um, origin story of how demons came to be, there are three commonly held theories. There's the Luciferian Rebellion. Uh, which the rebellion was said to have been caused by one of two main reasons. Uh, there's Lucifer's pride and, uh, oh, Lucifer's pride. So the first is that it's said that Lucifer was so proud and vain that he believed that he saw it, that he could seek to compete with God. This started the war in heaven. There's also, uh, again, like I said, Lucifer's pride. It's said that when God created man in his image, he demanded that Lucifer and the heavenly host bow before his creation. And Lucifer was like, nah, I'm not doing that. In either of these cases, it is understood that the angels who sided with Lucifer accounted for a whole third of the heavenly host. The rebellion ultimately failed, and Lucifer, now Satan, and all his angels, now demons, were cast out of heaven. Here again, there's disagreement, as it's unclear whether they were cast down to earth or cast into hell. Uh, some say that God created hell as a result of this uprising and that they were cast into it, but there is also scriptural evidence uh, which alleges that this hasn't happened yet and will happen at the end of days. Next, we have the Adamic Fall, which is the one that most people are, are um, the most familiar with. So in the book of Genesis, God fashions Adam from dust and places him in the Garden of Eden. Adam is told that he can eat freely of all of the trees in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Subsequently, Eve is created from one of Adam's ribs to be Adam's companion. Yeah, we're just going to gloss over Lilith for a minute. So just give me a second. We'll get there. Uh, they are innocent and unembarrassed about their nakedness. However, a serpent, which is popularly seen as either Lucifer slash Satan, um, deceives Eve into eating fruit from the forbidden tree, and she gives some of the fruit to Adam. Now, these acts give them additional knowledge, but it gives them the ability to conjure negative and destructive concepts like shame and evil. Uh, God, of course, freaks out and curses the serpent and the ground and prophetically tells the woman and the man what will be the consequences of their sin of disobeying God. Then he banishes them from the Garden of Eden. This is known as the Adamic Fall or the Fall of Man, and it's known as also the creation of original sin. It is also referred to as the act which would then get Satan and his allies cast out of heaven. And last but not least, we have the Enochic Fall. Now, other sources for fallen angels lay within the Watchers or Grigori. Uh, they're first mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, and they're the focus of 1st Enoch chapters 1 through 16 and Jubilees chapter 10. In Enoch, sin and the angelic fall are caused by two key acts. Angels descend from heaven and fornicate with women, birthing a race of giants called the Nephilim. Uh, if you don't know, it's supposed that Goliath, and it's even sort of insinuated that Goliath is a descendant of the Nephilim. Uh, so, basically, that's sin one. Sin two is providing humanity with forbidden knowledge, uh, which are called in the scripture, stolen mysteries. 
so basically what we have are these two angels, these two archangels, who are guilty of doing these things. You have Samael, um, who's sort of a big dick demon daddy, and has basically come down and is hanging out with a bunch of the other angels, and is like, uh, human women look really, really good. And so they decide to run off with some of the women and make the Nephilim. Uh, on the other hand, you have Mabu Azazel, who is um, like, hey, so it looks like you guys don't have like anything you need, so come on over here. And basically gathers up the men, gives them metallurgy and weapons and warfare, gathers up the women and teaches them the quote-unquote art of deception so that they can dye their hair and groom themselves and wear makeup and create jewelry and wear it and, you know, just live their best lives and be bad bitches. Um, and then gathers everybody together and is like, oh, hey, by the way, here's witchcraft medicine and how herbs work. And uh, all of these things were completely forbidden, as well as uh, some of the other things that he gave us, like uh, mathematics, architecture, geometry, um, you know, those sinful, evil, hellish things, those forbidden uh, subjects. So... Uh, eventually, these actions, as well as the birth of the Nephilim, precipitate the Great Flood. God basically takes the Earth and shakes it like a baby or an Etch-a-Sketch, and is like, this isn't what I wanted, and so creates the Great Flood. This is supposed to have killed the Nephilim, leaving their spirits to wander disembodied until the end of days. The spirits which were left behind became what we now know as demons. This is also further extrapolated as the reasoning behind demonic possession, as these spirits long for a physical incarnation once more. Interestingly, um, throughout the past, you know, 1500 years, uh, the Nephilim have basically also supposedly been the ancestors of everybody from the evil Illuminati world rulers to queers, to witches, to giants, to disabled people. Um, yeah, it's they've been blamed for just about everything. So um, that is basically it for the three common causes for demons. But going from there, what we can start looking at is essentially why demons even matter, right? Like that, that to me would be a big question. Why do demons even matter? Why are we even talking about them? Well, first of all, this is a class of spirits which has been ascribed a level of hatred and fear unlike any other in existence. But when we actually approach these spirits just like any other, right, with a calm head, due diligence, critical thinking, and objective research, we start to begin to understand that that the repugnant veneer of terror and vitriol may not altogether be reflective of their true nature. Now, this isn't to say that there's any reason whatsoever to throw caution to the wind and just start summoning demons, uh, you know, all over the place. But it does bear a certain amount of weight that the crimes committed by these spirits always falls down to a single potent concept, forbidden knowledge. This is the root cause of both the Adamic and Enochic Falls um, and sexy angels, whatever. But it is when we step back to measure the knowledge on offer, who has forbidden it and where we stand in proximity to the God who would have us forsake these spirits um, outright, that the questions begin to form. Here we have divergent categories based on how and when each of the demons offers their forbidden knowledge. So we have the forbidden knowledge offered to humans by the Nephilim, because the Nephilim were known in ancient lore and legend, uh, along with the Gregory, to be the source of humanity's knowledge of everything from astrology, alchemy, and witchcraft to geometry, mathematics, and architecture. But there's also the forbidden knowledge any given demon offers once they're summoned and properly propitiated. You see, each of the 72 demons of the Goetia maintain a specific field of forbidden knowledge 
knowledge which they are willing to bestow upon those they favor. Most often a demon's forbidden knowledge is attributed to their former status in the heavenly host. However, there are many instances where this same knowledge is seen as a standard of proof, like in the criterion most often seen in Roman Catholic standards of exorcism used to verify that a person is authentically possessed. If for nothing else, I believe that demonology is a massively powerful arsenal of knowledge, just like the art of curse work, with which one can understand what has been outlawed and decried in the magical world. But even more so, the fact that a topic makes you uncomfortable doesn't excuse your willful ignorance of it, okay? You may not like the fact that there's genocide happening in the world. That doesn't mean that you get to ignore it, okay? It also doesn't effectively inoculate you against it. It doesn't mean nobody can ever come for you, you know, saying, oh, well, I don't believe in curses because, you know, if you don't believe in them, then they can't hurt you. It's like saying, like, well, I don't believe in bullets or guns, so they can't shoot me. It's like, mm, that's oh, OK. Is that the horse you want to bet on? Um, but this also brings us to another question, even more so now that we've got all this laid down, why would someone attempt to invoke or summon a demon like that? It kind of begs us to think like, well, what are demons capable of? What do they actually offer? You know, when it comes to any relationship between the mortal and the divine, the human and the supernatural, there's a definite understanding of the protocol, mechanics, and quality inherent in any of these relationships. For example, many deities require a devotional relationship, while many saints, tutelary spirits, and ancestors operate on a transactional level. When it comes to demons, there's a bit of disagreement on how to, how and what circumstances uh, under which one should under engage with the entities in question. The traditional method uh, ascribed is what I call the three C's, command, control, compel. The spirits in question are considered foul, contemptible, and never to be trusted. This view is built upon the older ideas in which demons were not only deeply untrustworthy, but they were inherently evil and would only entice humans in order to harm them. It was out of this ideology that the archetypal witch was born. Having signed a diabolical contract, she acts out of worship or service to Satan and creates evil on earth. Basically, toxic masculinity personified. More recent iterations of demonology have offered that this viewpoint is rooted in Abrahamic monotheism and its attitudes towards demons as a class of spirit. Given that there's ample evidence that many of the spirits in the Goetia and, the de and demonology at large are actually bastardized gods, spirits, kings, and folk heroes, then doubts should crop up, which would preclude each of us from approaching these spirits in order to capture and coerce them using the threat of torture. Because another question crops up here, are these actually the bad guys? You know, I hope it's become clear at this point that there is far more to the demon than the traditionally accepted methodology and knowledge. And as queers, femmes, and folks of marginalized identity, we should understand just how easy it is to become demonized when one falls outside of the prevailing order or, or attempts to speak truth to power. Let me give you a few demonic examples that you might find some camaraderie with. There's a Jewish dancing roof demon named Agrat Bat Malat who is said to ride in a chariot and be accompanied by a retinue of, of up to 20 spirits of destruction and mayhem. Girl Squad. It is said that she is the mother of Asmodeus, a pretty major demon, and either a daughter or granddaughter of Lilith herself, who howls and shrieks as Agrat dances through the air. She's also been called the Queen of Witches, and in some forms of Kabbalah, she's known as the Queen of Demons. She's also a patroness of sacred sex work. 
Uh-huh. Her consort, Samael, who's the big dick daddy demon we were talking about earlier, is the archangel known as accuser, seducer, and destroyer. <laughs> Destroy me. Um, he's also the primary angel of death, engineer of the Adamic fall, because in traditional tellings, he's actually the one playing the serpent. Um, and he's often described fatherhood of Cain. So he even got down with Eve and begat Cain. Agrat, like Samael, was seen as primarily evil, but also beneficent to those she favors, teaching the arts of witchcraft, the secret knowledge of poisons, and most of all, she delights in the toppling of kings and the destruction of tyrants, and she's been known to have played along with uh, several bl bloody revolutions. So, okay, let's look at this now. Does she seem like a potentially dangerous spirit? Absolutely. Irrevocably evil? Not at all. She seems like a vitriolic, possibly wrathful war goddess that one should tread carefully in honoring. I'd be more worried about Baba Yaga. She's got fucking iron teeth and she'll eat you as soon as she looks at you. There's also Aishef, a.k.a. the Woman of Whoredom, which is clearly going to be my Twitter handle now. Uh, she comes to us from the Kabbalah, where she is said to eat the souls of the damned. Demon or good time gal? You decide. Here's an even more compelling example for questioning not only which spirits became demons, but also what knowledge was forbidden and why. Enter Kazdeja, or Kazdeja, from the Book of Enoch, who taught us the most dangerous of stolen mysteries. How to smite. She taught us how to smite spirits and demons, smite enemies with deadly snake bites and sunstroke, but most of all, she taught us how to smite the unborn. You heard right. This fallen angel taught us abortion. Now she's a demon. To the math. Of course, there are the classics, the heavy hitters. We already talked about Samael. Uh, we've got Azazel, Payman, Astroth, Lilith. Um, and Azazel's a big deal. I'm going to start out with Azazel because um, he's very clearly my favorite. He's what you might call our MVP or GOAT, as the kids say. He teaches, again, men how to make weapons and kill each other and teaches women how to have a Mary Kay party. I mean, it's fine with me, you know? Um... Now, the thing is, is that in the book of Enoch, chapter 10, verse 8, it says, The whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him, ascribe all sin. So, what happens to him? Because, I mean, hello, we're talking punishment, right? Well, apparently, God sets Raphael after him, the you know one of the main archangels uh, in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And uh, Azazel ends up chained to some rocks in total darkness being eternally tortured until the end of days. So again, I posit, he's basically sexy winged Prometheus. Payman is one of those situations in demonology, specifically the Goetia, where patriarchal influence is at its most evident and most ludicrous. So you may recognize the name Payman, you know, hail Payman, if you've seen uh, um, Hereditary, which if you haven't, I cannot recommend it enough. It is one of the most incredible, it just unbelievable horror movies in recent years. Um, so Payman is an incredibly powerful king of hell whose arrival is announced by an unbelievable cacophony and who speaks in a voice so deafening that he cannot be understood until he is compelled or, I don't know, asked to tone it down. He always appears riding a dromedary, usually a camel, and appears as a man with a feminine face, a woman's face, or a woman altogether of some royal standing, wearing a most glorious crown. The Goetia uses he, him, 
as it does for all 78 demons, uh, as they must be male. Regardless of how evil they are, they have power, so they must be male, right? This may sound confusing, but it gets even worse. I mean, in the same 72 demons, there's Vepar, um, who's referred to as he, him, and is a full-on fucking mermaid, okay? Uh, then there's Astroth, also among the 72 demons of the Goetia. Uh, they are a chief demon in the Goetia, pictured as a foul crowned angel riding a beast and bearing a serpent. However, his name comes from, oh, Astarte, the Phoenician entry in the continuum of Mesopotamian goddesses aligned with Venus, along with Ishtar and Inanna. Remember them? As a demon, she's male. She leads one to buried treasures, teaches mathematics, sciences, handicrafts, invisibility, and dominion over serpents. As the horned goddess, she's associated with fertility, sexuality, sovereignty, and war. Her symbols are the lion, the horse, the sphinx, and the dove. Oh, and a star in a circle, the ancient symbol for Venus. Figure that one out. And finally, we have Lilith, the OG baddie. Not only did she reject Adam's bullshit, but she refused to back down to God when he took Adam's side. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me just give you a little preview. We'll go into her full bore next week. But what do I mean by rejecting Adam's bullshit and not backing down to God? Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier when we were talking about Adam and Eve that Eve had uh, somebody who came before her, and her name was Lilith. So we all know there's Adam and Eve, right? Adam's made out of dirt, and then God takes one of his ribs and makes Eve because he wants women to be uh, born out of men because men are placed in a higher position, right? Well, that's not how it started, though, because Adam and Lilith were created as equal counterparts and were both made out of the dirt. Everything's going completely fine until one day piss baby Adam is like, you have to submit to me. You have to do what I want. And it's it's suggested that this is uh, about sexual submission. And basically Lilith is like, you can get fucked. I'm not doing anything that I don't want to do. And of course, again, piss baby Adam is like, God, and you have to understand, we're talking like Old Testament, Genesis, you know, there's all this talk in the Garden of Eden about how God would come down in the cool of the evening and would walk with Adam and Eve and would converse with them, mainly Adam. And so he comes down and he's like, what? What's the problem? And he's like, Lilith won't submit to me. And he turns to Lilith and God's like, what's the problem? And she's like, I'm not doing what he wants. We're equals. I will do what I want and I will not be conquered and I will not be told how I'm supposed to do everything. And so she's like, I mean, isn't that like what you wanted? We're, we were made equally. And God's like, oh, um, no, actually Adam's right. Adam's in charge. And she's like, what? And he's like, yeah, that's the way I planned it. Sorry about that. And she's like, oh, well, I guess she must have planned on this too because she gave me two middle fingers. So she basically tells both of them to fuck off and takes her naked sexy ass and struts out of the Garden of Eden, which is paradise, goes out into the wilderness, takes her righteous rage and transforms herself into a terrifying goddess, the mother of demons and monsters, the murderer of babies and the queen of the night in all of its horrors. Oh, and she gets booed up with Samael. He apparently has four wives and there's a lot of sharing but she's the chief wife because she's the one who runs this shit okay now there is of course the argument that yes these were once proud deities ancestors and monarchs who were beloved benevolent and beloved in their time and they could be trusted however after only being known and treated as evil demons for millennia they're now twisted and corrupted and i personally think hey that's worth considering uh but you know due to that here's a word of caution 
Regardless of what one believes the true nature of demons to be, there is a certain amount of respect which must be shown, as well as vital protective measures one must undergo in order to safely approach any of the spirits which fall into this or any other category, because it is the unknown, unpredictable nature of any spirit which demands these conscious critical actions, not their supposed danger or evil. Any spirit who the individual has not yet interacted with is potentially dangerous, so it's incumbent, uh, incumbent upon the practitioner to carry out their due diligence of research, divination, preparation, purification, and protection before and after any uh, potential contacts can be made. The truth of these matters is profoundly simple. Not every spirit is willing to even acknowledge you, much less welcome contact from you. Spirits do not exist for the convenience, consumption, or commodification of humans. Never, ever, ever, ever forget this. I want to thank you again for checking out my podcast. When God Was Queer has been a fruitful journey for me and a labor of love, and I've really enjoyed hearing from so many of you about how it's impacted you for the better, uh, being able to hear these stories and have them to share. That's been the whole point. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you're going to enjoy walking on the wild side and tangling with the taboo and uh, fucking around with the forbidden in this and our next episode. Because the forbidden has always been magnetic to me and many other queers. I attribute this in at least some part to so many facets of our nature being forbidden in different times and places, including today. So for today, get out there, dear rebel, be gay, do crime, and never forget the gods and a couple demons are always watching. Bye.